The Society of Vascular Interventional Neurology is a dynamic group of talented individuals who are neurologists and interventionalists. And these folks are so passionate about what they do that it's been a privilege attending their meeting virtually this year in Phoenix, Arizona. It has been such an exciting time with a lot of different results being presented and really the boundaries of the field being pushed forward. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Amir Hassan, the president of SPIN. So here you go, Stroke FM, directly from SPIN's president. Hello, everyone. I'm Amir Hassan, head of neuroscience department at Valley Baptist Medical Center, and I'm a professor of neurology and radiology at University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Uh, so here in Phoenix um, at the Sheraton Wild Horse Pass, we just uh, were on our final day of our Sven annual meeting. The fellows course is going to be starting in, in a couple of, uh, in actually in an hour. And uh, it's been a very well attended event. Uh, we had over 650 attendees with another 600 virtual. So it's been a very successful event. Fantastic, Amir. And, and at uh, Valley Baptist, you guys are so busy and it was so uh, so interesting to hear all of the challenges of bringing in patients from you know the hub and spokes model, much like we have here in Toronto and many centers in Canada. So I was just wanted to ask you sort of, what were some of the cool takeaway themes from this meeting that, that uh, you thought really pushed the boundaries or moved the needle uh, in your thinking and what's coming in the next uh, few years? So uh, I think today's morning sessions really were, were the clinical trial updates. And we heard a lot about what's next for endovascular. So I'll discuss those a, a little bit first, and then we can talk about you know the, the hub and spoke model and, and how to build a program uh, for those junior attendings or fellows now looking for jobs. You know how to go to an underserved area and really make a difference, right? Go somewhere where there is not 50 guys, and uh, you can significantly improve subarachnoid hemorrhage and acute stroke outcomes. But today we had, for example, the squid trial update, uh, embolization of middle meningeal artery. This is probably going to be a procedure that we're going to be doing very frequently in the near future. And there's the SQUID trial. There's the Embolize trial. SQUID is sponsored by BALT. Um, Embolize sponsored by Medtronic. I'm on the steering committee of that trial. And they're both moving forward full steam ahead. And uh, we truly believe that we're going to make a difference in these patients with chronic or acute and chronic subdurals. Uh, the Tesla trial is a large core trial presented by Dr. Sanzaidat, the PI. Um, so it's a, a trial like in extremis and like SELECT2, which is uh, another study I'm on the steering committee for, and uh, Amr Siraj is the PI. And we truly believe we'll be able to help these patients. We might not get the same very good outcomes we found in SWIFT Prime or DAWN, but like Tudor Jovan always says, our number needed to treat is too low. So we need to be more inclusive. So if a patient has 100 cc's of infarct, but 300, 280, 250 mLs of salvageable tissue, we can actually benefit these patients with mechanical thrombectomy, but we need data. So hopefully all these trials should be presenting within the next year or two their results. SWIFT Direct was presented by Jan Grala. Uh, he came all the way from uh, Bern, Switzerland. And uh, I know Jan very well from, from the SLICE meeting. We were just together a few uh, weeks ago in Montpellier with Vincent Costola. And SWIFT Direct basically showed there was no difference if you took a patient straight to cath lab for mechanical thrombectomy or if you gave the patient IV thrombolytics, and went to mechanical thrombectomy. There was also a meta-analysis presented recently of all of the trials that compared direct to mechanical versus the bridging therapy. And it looks like if it's at your center, really, to understand this, it's individualized medicine. We can't just take this blanket statement. So I truly believe in, in my center, if I have a patient on the table and I have an elective procedure in a room, and I know this patient's going to go through a process until they get up to the cath lab, 
I'm going to give them IV thrombolytic. I'm going to get all the images, and then I'm going to bring that patient up to cath lab. But if I have a cath lab MT and a team is sitting there, I'm taking that patient straight up. That's one example. Second example, we have 20% of our patients have tandem lesions. So I have a lot of acute carotid stenting, a lot of acute intracranial stenting. Do I really want IV thrombolytics on board? Whether it's TNK or out the place, it doesn't matter. So I'm going to have to give that patient tyrophiban or uh, load with Bruenta, dual antiplatelet therapy, aspirin plavix. So th- there's a lot going on there that I prefer to take that patient straight to cath lab, treat the patient and stent and feel a little bit more comfortable starting my glycoprotein 2B3A and my dual therapy without worrying about hemorrhage risk with the uh, thrombolytics. I think that's a that's a really important point, as you said. So if the cath lab is open and there are some nuances about the case, like a tandem lesion, high risk of hemorrhage, that these are patients now that we, we seem to have certain amount of permission, given the literature, to take them directly to the cath lab. And as you mentioned, the, the location of the lesion matters, but also, I guess, if it is in the middle of the night, and the team is going to take an hour to come in, this is probably still not the right time to not uh, give TPA. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. And I think it was brought up very well in the first uh, day endovascular sessions on Thursday. It was Jeff Saver with Andrew Dumchuk and Rowan McGarren. It was a very lively debate amongst some of the pioneers in the field. And, you know, I like the way Jeff laid down the ground rules. We are only talking about patients who come into the CSC. Nobody's saying spokes should come over to us. Uh, you know, directly bypassing thrombolytics. So it is extremely important. That's a very important point. Exactly. Not not to not to bypass what's happening in the community before patients come to a CSC. That's absolutely important. That's great. So what else? What else made you think about other things? Like, the, what did you think about findings from Aurora? What what did that sort of reflect when you reflect back on that? So I think Aurora really cemented the idea that it is safe to treat endovascular patients. We were at dawn site. We were very excited. Um, but it really broke my heart every time we randomized a patient in that trial. Um, the first three we randomized to medical arm all died. And Raul and Tudor did a great job keeping the team together, the steering committee together. And like they would call us individually when these patients were enrolled. Thank you for continuing to enroll patients in the study. We know you believe that these patients should be treated, but we need the data. And again, in another, it's another study that the number needed to treat, the number came out too low. So it, it did confirm what we saw in Dawn and Diffuse. Right. And and so what Aurora, I guess, mentioned, like essentially demonstrated is that there's benefit across all of these, uh, across all of these groups. So the, the one thing that we did discuss at the meeting, you know, during this debate style discussion of the Aurora was we, we hope the guidelines change it because... Currently, you need to follow diffuse criteria for up to 16 hours. And then they say there is some data for, I think it's 1B or something. It's not level 1A evidence yet. So we're hoping with Aurora, it is, listen, it's really about collaterals. It's about tissues. It's really not just about time. And we should be able to treat patients comfortably up to 24 hours. Yeah, and, and Raul mentioned that in his talk as well this morning, which was very excellent about, about the competition between uh, collateral dropout and recanalization using whatever modality. Um, just before we move on, uh, going back to what you talked about direct to cath lab, in patients that you do take to cath lab and it is not, let's say, um, a tandem occlusion and you're having significant difficulty for access or something like that, do you ever or do you or have you used the rescue thrombolysis on the cath lab table within 30 minutes as sort of implied when when the folks from Mr. Clean No IV presented their trial data? Uh, no. So for us, it's usually these patients. I mean, it, it's never been that bad of an issue. If we can't get femoral access, we go radial, uh, to be honest. So it's, it's fairly quickly in the, most cases. Um, I would say that most 
the, the, maybe the handful of times that it might have taken you 30 minutes from getting the patient on the table to getting intracranial access. These patients are typically older patients, very tortuous, way outside the window, um, on anticoagulation. But I, I ne- I've never given the thrombolytic in cath lab, even if they were still within the window, because it's never been an issue of, of a delay in time. And I think another cool thing that came out of the meeting was really uh, discussion around the need for advanced imaging for the 6 to 24-hour patients as well. And that, um, uh, and that you know, getting that vessel open probably in a lot of patients still is beneficial uh, and, and that the hemorrhage risk is not as bad as we think. I, I completely agree. We, we know it's safe. And again, number needed to treat is too low. So we are not including more patients. We should be treating more patients. STEMI, number needed to treat the benefit is 17. And, and we are 2 point something in, in Dawn, 2.4. Number needed to treat a four with Swift Prime data. So we are being too... Um, exclusive. We need to broaden our inclusion criteria for mechanical thrombectomy. So this is a good segue to then talk about uh, your talk, actually, that uh, that discussed the the use of stenting, you know, in the subacute sort of timeline or also acutely, which you just mentioned. Do you mind telling us kind of your perspectives on kind of when you when you deploy stents in, in ICAD and uh, also talk about what you just you know, there's a segue uh, in these patients that you, you know, with tandem occlusions that you may want to then start to intervene on directly on the on the table if they, you know, they have not been already given a, a lytic agent. Yeah. So from an acute stroke standpoint, we we know that it does carry some risk. Uh, we've had two papers in the last year showing relative safety of acute intracranial stenting on glycoprotein 2B3As, whether or not they received IV thrombolytic. And those patients did just as well, 90-day modified Rankin, discharge modified Rankin, and hemorrhage rates. No statistically significant difference compared to their counterparts who didn't get TPA or their counterparts who didn't get intracranial stenting. So we know it's, it's, it's relatively safe, but we also understand that, that hot plaque theory. We don't want to aggravate an ulcerated plaque and start throwing things distal. I think if you have futile recanalization, multiple passes, you see the stent retriever open up to a certain degree, and then you're like, okay, this is at the same point, it's it's constricted. It's probably ICAD. You can try angioplasty first. And I could say probably 25 to 30% of the time we get away with angioplasty alone and then follow the lesion, wait for seven days and, and treat with stenting. But 70% of the time, that's not enough. Your angioplasty it didn't improve. So if you feel like you got a good angioplasty and it might be a dissection, you know, based on the, the angiogram when you were deploying the stent retriever, you know, the history of the patient looking at the other vessels. If we believe it's a dissection, we use a self-expanding stent, something that goes through a 17 catheter. You know, you could use Atlas and it does very well. And you actually see these patients with their six-month follow-up imaging. It opens up and it looks beautiful. The patients, you know, it's ICAD, you know, it's Athero. Stents like Atlas Enterprise, they don't work. So you can use Wingspan. Um, it's, it's off-label for acute stenting in acute ischemic stroke. But because it's it's got much more radio force and it continues to expand. And then you, we've been using a lot more balloon-mounted stents. So we published our first series using the Resolute Onyx uh, balloon-mounted stent just for ICAD cases. So these are patients that would have met WEAVE criteria. After seven days, multiple events on maximal medical management, stat and dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, no life coach, right? It's, it's not realistic. Some of the things in Sampras never trickled down to the real world. The only thing that really did trickle down is patients with severe intracranial atherosclerotic disease, a lot of them shifted to dual antiplatelet therapy as standard of care, which we noticed, yes, it did improve some patients' outcomes. But when I have a patient with a lacunar stroke who has incidental ICAD, yes, that patient is not going to benefit from stenting. But if I have near occlusion of a basilar, I have a CTP, I don't even have to do a Diamox challenge. 
but you could see there's a perfusion deficit there. This patient has failed medical therapy. Now, sometimes, yes, a life coach might help, but it's not realistic. Medicare, Medicaid don't pay for this. Insurance companies don't pay for it. And nobody's been able to prove it outside of that initial trial. So in those patients today, we are treating with wingspan if there's a difference in distal and proximal diameters of the vessel. You don't want to use a balloon-mounted stent in patients that, for example, distally 1.52 millimeters, proximally 3 millimeters. You use self-expanding stents for those cases. Around perforators, I actually prefer uh, wingspan um, self-expanding stent. I use 80% balloon sizing, 70 to 80%, especially around mid-basilar pontine perforators and lenticular strides in the M1. But if it's proximal M1, distal M1, vertebrals, you know, V3, V4, VB junction, those cases do much better today with a stent like a Resolute Onyx. Balloon-mounted stent, no exchange. Uh, the trackability has improved significantly in the last decade. It is the slimmest profile. The 2 by 8 millimeter is the slimmest profile balloon-mounted stent sold in the United States. And uh, we have an abstract coming out at uh, ISC that's showing the, the follow-up on these patients. And restenosis rates are much lower than what we saw with self-expanding stents like wingspan. That's excellent. And just a side point. So your patients are obviously given uh, essentially a G2B3 inhibitor uh, IV as a bolus in the cath lab when you're, when you're deploying such stents, right? Uh, for acute stenting. If it's an ICAD patient, no. Usually those patients, we check the PRU. If they were on aspirin plavix and they failed, we'll switch them to Berlinta. Yeah, so that was what I was getting to. So for the acute stenting, you guys, in your protocol, you guys would do a bolus. Do you do an infusion typically or not? So um, it depends how what's going on and how fast I can get things moving. Um, if I see that the patient didn't get thrombolytic, I'll give the bolus and I'll actually do the infusion for two hours. And we'll drop an NG um, and give the 180 milligram Berlinta bolus. And then that's it. You turn off the agristat after two hours, Berlinta's therapeutic. Yeah, so similar to what we do. Yeah, we typically just, just get a bolus and no infusion for the for the rare cases we've done that. And you mentioned Berlinta a few times, Ticagalor. Are you staring away from Plavix or do you, do you have point of care genetic testing first and then you're able to decide who, who you can't give Plavix to? Yes, so we do check platelet function because um, unfortunately, 20-25% of my patients, unfunded or undocumented, a uh, very large percentage of Medicare, Medicaid patients. We're in South Texas, the support area of the country, and they can't afford it. Even if we can get uh, the company to pay for 30 days of Berlinta, they won't pay for six months. So some cases, actually the majority of cases that their PRUs are very high, um, I am able to convince the hospital to help pay for three months. So they get one month free from the pharmaceutical company, and then the hospital will pay for three months. And it, it, it makes a lot of sense. These patients are going to come back with either restenosis or occlusion, and then they become a stroke that sits in your ICU for a month or two. So the hospital has been very supportive of our community and being able to provide, and then I'll switch them to aspirin plavix after that, right? Because we believe endothelialization occurs between 30 and 90 days. So that's interesting, Seth. So yeah, that's, so you do the PRU testing. So that's really cool. And in the other cases, then you are using more of a weave approach than you're waiting, as you mentioned, for about seven days, you let the, that plaque cool down. Yes. Now, obviously my partner and I have had those cases that you wait. And on day five, the patient has another stroke. And it breaks your heart. You're like, I knew this was going to happen, but you're waiting. And to be honest, we used to hesitate a lot more. I think now we're much more comfortable waiting because of the Weave registry data. So patients who were uh, study sites that were enrolling in Weave, if you used a wingspan, it had to be in the trial. So if it didn't meet study criteria, they put it in the registry. And there was a huge difference. You went from 2.6% risk of stroke to 23% if you treat within seven days. So it's such a huge difference that we're like, okay, we, we are definitely doing something wrong here. 
And I was at a Chinese conference recently. They have a lot of experience with ICANN, much more than we do in the United States. Um, you know, guys from, from Taiwan, Shanghai, Beijing, Korea, and they, a lot of them do advanced imaging, right? They're doing vessel wall imaging and they're making sure that that hot plaque, even after they schedule the case for 14 days, they repeat the imaging. If it's still a hot plaque, they'll wait 30 days. So we truly believe that if, if you're able to wait or image your hot plaques, I think you will significantly improve outcomes in your patients. That's fantastic. You read my mind. I was exactly going to ask you the role of advanced imaging and vessel wall imaging in these patients to try to triage when to intervene. And and then one of the other questions I want to ask is, do you do you a priori consent uh, for these cases when you take them in? Or do you do you ever have to scrub out briefly, talk to the family and say, you know, we're going to do we're going to do something off label here because your loved one's anatomy is so challenging. And I'm seeing the vessel occlude right in front of my eyes, despite angioplasty and despite a few passes of a stent retriever. Great question. So when we get consent for stroke, uh, we do have an emergency consent, uh, but if we do something uh, off-label, we, we pretty much go talk to the family. Uh, usually the fellow or somebody will go bring the family outside. You know, I'll talk to them through the microphone because we're doing things right away, right? We, we, I, I can't break scrub and go spend 15 minutes explaining something. Um, so in the acute setting, it's it's a little bit rushed. The, uh, the other good thing is most patients do have consent, right? It's not that we use emergency consent the majority of the time. So with our standard mechanical thrombectomy consent, it includes acute stenting, which is off-label. And we tell them up front. So yes, it's in a consented patient, it's it's not a problem. I don't break scrub. I don't talk to the family. And, you know, probably 20% of our patients, there's no family around. We just do emergency consent to move forward. Uh, those, if the family did show up, I'll go, I'll have them come into the cath lab control room and, and talk to them quickly. And I think that's a really important point. I mean, the 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 the, the Canadian Stroke Congress is happening uh, virtually right now in the morning. Uh, Spin just wrapped up, you know, after three days. The message that keeps coming time and time again is that if the vessel is going to be occluded in the in the hand of experts with a lot of nuanced understanding of what's going on, that still the outcome is probably going to be much worse if it's not intervened on, and most families will still understand that. And I think that's a really important point because there's a lot of gray now in the in the in the field, right? We have guidelines that really require revision in the six to twenty four hour protocol. We have some strong reliance on perfusion that needs to be clawed back. We have the concept of ghost core, which is no longer just something published, but really everyone really believes in it, that the, within the first six hours, you have to probably ignore perfusion completely. And then after that, you still have to use multimodal, uh, I, I use the word congruence, like the, there has to be congruence between the aspects and the perfusion to make a decision. If there's a discordant amount of information and the aspects looks good and the perfusion looks terrible, probably get that vessel still open. So, so I, I wanna say two things about that because we're very passionate about this. Uh, on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, we're part of Select2. We're very excited about the trial. And yes, right, It's we do believe and we hope that we're going to see this with the results. Non-invasive, no contrast, plain CT head imaging is going to be the future. But we have prospective studies that have very good data. All these patients at CT, CTA, CTP, it's put in through software. You know, we, we already know that software analysis of CT perfusion is much better than, you know, you reconstructing your own images. I published a paper in Neurocritical Care as a fellow looking at inter-rater, intra-rater reliability of CT perfusion. It was horrible. I mean, literally poor. So uh, that's one thing. We also published another paper when I first started practice, uh, probably five, six years ago now. It, the study was called Please No CTP. And the idea was within the six hours, why are we wasting our time doing CT perfusion? It takes time and it doesn't add any information. It never dictated whether the patient was at higher risk for mortality uh, or more likely to have a poor outcome. And I think, you know, what we saw with 
you know, clear recently, confirms the data that was published before by Sheth. Um, you know, the, uh, people have looked at this before and we will have several trials coming out. Like I said, in two years, Tesla data is going to be good uh, in extremists and of course, select two. So we're very excited to see those results, uh, you know, in the next year or two. That's fantastic. And just for the audience, we, we're aware that, you know, multi-phasic CT also adds a lot of information. So I guess to finish off, are there any comments you wanted to make about the hub and spokes model, your experience? Also, you had a great talk on uh, the implementation of uh, Viz AI and how that really shaped a lot of time off your processes. Uh, process sort of management and quality improvement is something that's near and dear to my heart. That's sort of what I do at our center. Um, and I just want to hear your thoughts about where you think that's heading. Where are we going to be in five years with implementation of more AI technology and processing and, and streamlining uh, linear processes, that key word of taking those linear things and making them parallel? No, of course. So I think the biggest thing is uh, mass implementation, right? Whether it's Viz, Rapid, Brainomics, uh, Olea, there's there's a lot of different softwares. I have friends that are submitting NIH grants to create a free software that's going to be coming out soon. But it's that, it's that mixture. It's not just the software. Anybody can reconstruct the CTP trigger you know a way to push an alert to you to look at the ctp and then you'll call that doctor and tell them hey transfer the patient for me but it really is taking those those images directly from the cat scan going to the cloud analyzing the images triggering using artificial intelligence the mass message to the whole team everybody being on the same playing field no like six serial phone calls it's all in parallel everything moving forward i don't even call my house supervisor anymore we're all on the viz chat that the research coordinators, we've improved enrollment in studies like embolize, the acute and chronic subdural, uh, chronic subdural MMA embolization study. You know, we're using it for intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, Dr. Techley and myself, Dr. Techley's leading leading this initiative in our hospital. Um, and Dr. Chris Kellner talked about it, uh, I think yesterday um, at, uh, at Zvin or maybe two days ago about the, you know, Artemis and the Nico and all these different devices for minimally invasive surgical hematoma evacuation. You're going to be able to pick up these patients faster. You're getting alert, everything pushed to your phone. You're communicating with your team and you're offering the best patient clinical outcome because we know time is burning. So by improving time, we know that we can get patients at the right place at the right time, get them the, their proper treatment, improve length of stay, improve clinical outcomes. And that's really what it comes down to. Fantastic. So the future is, is bright in stroke with further integration of technology and pushing more forward to get that vessel open. And I love the idea of open sourcing the software. I think that's going to be fantastic. That's really where it needs to go. So thank you so much, Amir, for taking the time. Congratulations on uh, being the president of SPIN. And thank you so much for you and the, all the organizers for such a great meeting. And uh, if folks want to find you, where, where can they talk to you? So I, I'm on Twitter. They can message me there. We're going to be ISC, of course. Uh, the AHA and us now have a, a journal together. It's called Stroke Colon Vascular Intervention Neurology. So the acronym is VIN, uh, which we couldn't have asked for a better name of our new journal. So uh, we will have a, a mentee, mentor, journal sponsored event at ISC. Uh, so for any of those residents or you know stroke fellows interested in neurodevascular, um, come on over and, and and meet uh, some of the, the leaders in the field. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on Stroke FM. Stroke FM is produced at the University of Toronto Division of Neurology. We have several co-hosts that make regular appearances. Check out our website, stroke.fm, for a full listing. The show is edited by Jamie Cases. I'm your host, Human Kosravani, and our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like Stroke FM, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, and on Spotify, follow us and subscribe. 
We are the official podcast of the Canadian Stroke Consortium and release episodes independently, but also with our partners at the Canadian Stroke Consortium. Check us out on our website and follow us on Twitter at StrokeFM.